You're listening to Banter Radio. I'm your host, Will Sherwin. And on this episode, I interviewed Shoshana Simons, PhD, registered drama therapist, and chair of the California Institute of Integral Studies Expressive Arts Therapy Program. Shoshana's current interests include narrative expressive arts therapy practices, the use of expressive arts modalities for promoting and maintaining mental health for therapists and human service workers, the role of expressive arts in leadership and social change, and arts-based research methods, especially cooperative inquiry methodology. She is particularly interested in creating opportunities for students in the expressive arts therapy program to be of joyful, creative service to underserved populations in the San Francisco Bay Area. Thank you, Shoshana, for, for joining me here. You're welcome. And would you tell me a little bit about how you got involved with narrative therapy, therapy? Mm-hmm. My story's a little strange in that I was a community, I was a community worker in London. I was working in, com- in uh, community-based services. I was running a homeless families project that was centered around the needs of children under five. Um, I, and I went to, did my master's actually in sociology and social policy and I focused my master's thesis on the impact of compulsory heterosexuality on lesbian relationships and this is a long way around to say of how I got into narrative the it was informed by very much a post-structuralist account of um, an understanding of policy that I was fortunate enough to be in a program that was very much about post-structuralist deconstructing government policy documents is what we were doing. It was fascinating. You know, Foucaultian and de Saussure and all these French theorists, you know, uh, using sort of deconstructionist theory. And so I got really fascinated by the absences of any kind of thinking or policy or inclusion for people who were queer identified in those days, LGB. There was no T. and I was wanting to, to really look at in my own practice as a, a therapist that was specializing by that time in working with lesbian couples, aside from everything that I was doing with the community work, what was the impact of homophobia on lesbian relationships? How were lesbians kind of impacted by these dominant discourses? So this was before I ever heard of narrative therapy I'm not even sure narrative was maybe in the very beginnings was happening around that time um, I ended up coming to the US in to, in 1990 because of to come to the Stone Center to train in relational cultural theory um, because I had been exposed to I'd gone to a, a conference in Amsterdam in the nine, late 80s and heard about relational cultural theory what at that time was called self in relation theory that was a very much about um, you know putting looking at women's experience within a local, larger social context, so that's why I ended up coming to the U.S. to study with them, to train with them, which was was really powerful. And then actually heard about got to got introduced to narrative and kind of constructionist ideas through one of my friends and co-conspirators in the U.K., Gail Simon, who now runs you know she's she's the she's the chair of a of a a systemic doctorate in in uh, the UK. 
and was a, a taught for KCC, the Kensington Consultation Centre in London for many, many years, a systemic and constructionist training program. Uh, she introduced me to narrative, and I thought, well, these are the same ideas I've been working with anyway. <laughs> so it was like so good to see these ideas in having been written into the therapeutic context. And before talking about how you got into narrative, when you said you were first encountering these ideas, um, post-structuralist ideas you're talking about, like what was that like? Can you flesh yeah. that out a little yeah. bit? Yeah, it was very exciting. It was very exciting. I, I, a couple of things really resonated, like the idea that um, of what was absent. I mean, a lot of it was focused on what aren't we hearing and learning how to read any text as a text, a cultural text. I mean, that was really the focus of this unusual master's <laughs> degree, <laughs> that we were trained in reading these documents for what was said and what was absent, what was absent in the discourse. And it really in introduced a discourse theory. And how were story, how were these documents granted legitimacy by the fact that they had, you know, an emblem on them, a symbol stamped on them, which said that they were a government document, which really conferred this authority on them when really they were a particular story. So I was very much trained in thinking about, to be skeptical about every social story that I was being fed through that, through that, through that training, really. Um, you know, I, I deal with a lot of documents with emblems on them in my work. Right. And can you give an example of like uh, a type of absence that you might notice in you know in some of these documents? Well, from then, in my in my uh, training back then, I chose uh, I did a deconstruction of a of a, a policy of policy around prostitution at that time. Um, I don't remember the exact name of that particular white paper, which is what they're called in the UK. The British government calls them a white paper, but it was about prostitution in the street. It was some legislation about prostitution in the street. And um, there was just, I, I mean, to this day, I remember some of the features of that, such as um, women, there were two ways of describing, there were two ways of describing women in this text. One was uh, a woman who had been on the commission, investigating commission to write this white paper, who was refer referred to as Mrs. So-and-so. Whereas women who were street workers weren't accorded any kind of title of any kind, certainly not one that meant that they belonged to a man, you know, Mrs., the married kind of. So the way that language was being used to confer um, um, status, particularly in relation to men, was really apparent in this text. And also the hidden nature of seeing that who was it that was being prosecuted. It was There was no reference to the Johns being prosecuted or picked up. It was all about what should we do with these women. So uh, it, it was a really a fascinating kind of exercise and training in, in looking for the gaps in stories. Um, and those gaps can be either gaps that contain all kinds of wealth of information about oppression as well as wealth of information about the overlooked kind of uh, subordinated stories. Both can be there.
so you started to get into narrative therapy. Uh, Gail Simon, you said? Gail Simon, yeah. And um, what happened then? Um, well, that, I was here by that time, and I was uh, living in the, on the East Coast. I chose in Vermont, living in Vermont at that time. And I started to, to, to just incorporate some of the practices into my own practice. And at that time, I wasn't uh, an, uh, an expressive arts therapist or a drama therapist. That came later in my life. Um, but I found it to be a really powerful way of working that did, it, it was the bridge between my kind of policy training um, and my, my experience as a therapist. Sort of brought those, the, I'd always been interested in how the individual and the social kind of impact one another. Mm-hmm. And narrative therapy was a way that, it was an approach that really spoke to that. Mm-hmm. You know, helped me to work with my clients in a way that would help them make the connections between um, what was happening kind of more subjectively with, with what with the con- social conditions of their lives mm-hmm. more uh, in a more of a contextual way. And what were the, the things that you started to use in that period? Because sometimes snare is described as like a technique of externalization, mm-hmm. is like described as the main thing about it. And mm-hmm. there's much more. What were you using that you were finding helpful and impactful? Well, I think that's that's a great uh, comment and question to make, that it's not really just a bunch of techniques. And as I think about it, um, I was bringing... I'd never worked in a very formulaic way. You know, I, my whole story was that I was never even really exposed to any formulaic way because I wasn't allowed to. So there's a lot of space that was created by being excluded from being able to train. If I'd have trained in one of those institutes in England, what would have become of me, in a way... You know, do I really want to belong to that club where I could get trained in, you know, Kleinian analysis? Um, No, I couldn't. I was excluded. So it meant that I did a lot of creative things that I brought into my practice as a narrative therapist. Like I trained in Gestalt work. Um, I was was an outsider. I saw myself as an outsider in my identities. And I uh, brought that outsider perspective very much into the way that I practiced narrative. A kind of a playfulness. I'd also always worked with kids mm-hmm. um, outside of therapy. I'd, I'd been working with children since I left school when I was 18. So I was very much influenced by children's ways of being and young people's ways of surviving. And I think I brought that in to the way, to my style, if you like, that was fortunately very congruent with, you know, more playful, um, uh, I'm doing a certain wave with my hand right now, a way of moving in between rather than necessarily a linear kind of way of working with, with people according to some kind of preset schema, which would include the idea that you have to externalize in a particular way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know in the first narrative salon we had here in the Bay Area a couple of years ago, um, you came and you talked about work and you also mentioned that there's a time when you kind of moved away from some narrative practices and into more of the uh, drama therapy or art therapy and would you say something about that yes yeah um i found that narrative therapy as i was um working with it at that time um i found the restriction i found language to be restrictive i found the focus on the spoken word no matter how creative we could be with it, to be restrictive. And um, not to say it's not completely central and important, but there are so many other languages 
um, and they're not all about the spoken word. And I could see that it was not uh, the best medium to work with everyone, um, and that uh, the other the other the other strand of my kind of uh, needing to move away from narrative therapy had to do with. Um, hearing the power of the metaphor of of audiencing you know this idea in narrative therapy that one we create we need to create audiences for to receive the new story that that's that's a critical part of the theory that really appealed to me and I kind of like maybe as a performer understood it in a particular way it landed in a particular way for me you have to create an audience to deepen one's own story that when you're when, when the audience receives it and one applauds you or receives it or writes a review or um, gives you some kind of a feedback something happens to the actor you know something's happening to the actor in that in that audiencing and that it it seemed like aha there's something missing here we don't just have to tell our stories we need to perform our stories we need to re-perform our stories because there, and we use that metaphor a lot in narrative work, the performance of our lives, the, you know. So I wanted to, uh, and being actors, acting in our lives, how to move those metaphors out of just the verbal linguistic realm into the more kind of, more fully embodied realm. So um, that I, I trained as a drama therapist at laterally, it wasn't because I was trying to do anything with narrative therapy, but I felt like there were these two tracks for a while. There was my narrative self, and then there was my drama therapy self. And um, I wanted to find ways of, of bringing that together. Mm-hmm. And um, sort of doing that in my own sweet way. Mm-hmm. And then discovered that Pamela Dunn was also, had sort of developed it. She'd really put a lot of um, attention and care and thought into developing a whole specific way that she does that work. So that it was great to, to meet her and find her work that's also influenced my work mm-hmm. in the present. And when you were exploring drama therapy and art therapy, um, and they have a whole theory that uh, there's different theorists involved in art therapy and drama therapy, and did you find that there was a lot of um, compatibility with narrative, or did you kind of have to deconstruct some of what was dominant to those fields to find something else? Well, I didn't try, I did, I'm not an art therapist. Art therapy is a very specific field, and I'm not an art therapist. Um, and I think I'd have less in common with an art, with technically with art therapy. But as a drama therapist, there's a tremendous amount of overlap. There are lots of different approaches within drama therapy, actually. And I actually was trained in transpersonal drama therapy, specifically. And, and with someone who was working from a very strong social justice perspective. Um, and I find found that there was a lot of overlap because drama therapy is about um, a real actually in all of the creative arts a very big part of all the creative arts work has to do with externalization um, you're working with a third thing you're working with distancing from whatever the problem is and putting it outside of oneself um, drama therapy is incredibly playful probably of all of the approaches it's the most playful mm. approach um, so it was very congruent with narrative, just playing with ideas, with using the, it's very imaginal. Uh, it, and I was in particular drawn to the psychodramatic parts of drama therapy, the, its psychodramatic roots. In fact, psychodrama doesn't even see itself as, wouldn't describe itself as drama therapy, it sort of preceded it. 
but um, I saw a lot of com a lot of ways in which there was congruence between narrative work and psychodramatic work, because in psychodramatic work you collapse time, which is very similar, very similar concept mm. in narrative therapy. It really is working with the idea that we can we we create in the present. In the present, we're able to transform the past and we're transforming the future. And it goes one step further in that you're, you are able to live and create the past or the present or the future right here and now in any crazy way you like. It opens up such a huge realm of possibility. And in fact, I discovered when I uh, started to, to really study psychodrama, particularly in more depth, the work of Jacob Morena, I learned about the sort of forerunners of the reflecting team. He was doing he was doing reflecting team work before any of the family therapists or before Michael White was doing reflecting team work um, for very similar reasons. He worked in Bellevue, I think, in New York, and was horrified by the way that he heard psychiatrists talking about their clients, their patients in their absence, and insisted that if you were going to talk about your patients, they needed to be in the room. So one of the parts, the essential parts, key parts of the psychodramatic process is a, is a psychodramatic sharing that looks uncannily like a reflecting team or an outsider witness team, um, where the, uh, the, uh, the notion is that everyone's stories are impacted by the story of the person who's playing the role of the protagonist. We don't even use the word client. The protagonist's story touches everyone's story and has ripple effects and that we hear the rippling effects back from the, the gathered group. So there's a lot of congruence between these approaches. Do you think there, have you encountered any misconceptions about drama therapy? About drama therapy? Um, from narrative therapists? <laughs> yeah. um, not specifically, not specifically. I do find sometimes some... Oddly enough, it seems like that, that sometimes I encounter that narrative therapists are very tightly, tight, some narrative therapists can appear to be very tightly um, wedded to a particular version of truth related to their idea of narrative therapy that always strikes me as funny when narrative therapy for me, what draws me to it is the idea that it allow, gives me a lens to, to, to look at other things from and see that, that you know that it's not it doesn't have to be a fixed story in and of itself that narrative therapy itself isn't a fixed position and yet i see some narrative th people who call themselves narrative therapists being very fixed about their idea about what they're doing which i guess is kind of amusing in a way so as a as a teacher who teaches about narrative therapy how do you teach in a way that it's that it's still playful and it still has a degree of openness about how to do it and is what do you put at the center um for that kind of endeavor so it's not it's not so fixed yeah that's a, a really good question because i don't actually teach narrative th there i struggle with this a little bit because i don't even know if i should call it narrative therapy because one of the things i co-teach with danielle Drake Burnett, who I think you've met, and we we've been talking about it what is this third thing that happens when you bring together narrative ideas and practices with the arts because what we do a lot of is what they call actually in the expressive arts world um, 
decentering, and it has a different meaning than decentering as we use it in narrative therapy. In de but there's a place where it might come together. In, in, in the expressive arts work, we talk about decentering as when you go into the arts, you kind of let your story go. You let any narrative go, and you immerse yourself in the artistic process, whatever that might be. And then through that, you just go into it. It's a very sensory experience. And then you start to create the story after you've been in this intense decentering process, artistic process. We do a lot of that. We'll, we'll do an arts activity, and we'll intentionally create the activity to, kind, to reflect narrative ideas and principles. And then after that activity, it'll be followed up by an interview, a more kind of conventional narrative interview. Um, but it looks radically different from what, I don't know who this person is that I think is this narrative therapist in my head, but that the person who's the narrative therapist in my head would say it looks like narrative therapy, if that makes sense. I mean, is that person like Michael White, do you think? I don't think it's Michael White. I, th I think Michael would be quite happy with these developments, actually. What I mean, I never met him, so I got into yeah. narrative therapy around 2010. Yeah. So I never met him, but um, could you say like some I don't know some memories you have of him, or that that kind of tell you that he would be happy with these kind of developments? Well, the thing that he used to say that I I loved a lot. And I don't I never remember who I don't know where he got this from, but this idea that it's the copy that originates. You know that he would say you can't do the same thing twice. It's never going to look the same. You can only be the, the you can only do it the way that you do it, and that's going to change it. You know, there was a lot of permission in that. You know, knowing that we're all going to bring our own way of being into the work, the way that we do the work. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not about copying and you know, carbon copying. And yet, I would see people trying to be Michael White back in those days, asking questions in exactly the same tone of voice and style and the same body language. <laughs> So there was, and that, I guess that was a, a tribute to the power of the way that he worked. Also, is it part of you know, the copying that originates? They, you know, think that copying will help originate. You know, I mean, I've done stuff where I've memorized questions yeah. so I could have them in my head, and then that yeah. sort of generates new ideas from right. that. You yeah, know? that's right. As a teacher, like, what what kind of questions are like alive for you as you go about this process of teaching people who are going to be have a lot of responsibility and. Mm -hmm. um, caring about the ethics involved. What, what are the questions that sort of are alive for you in that work? Well, I think in, in an age of um, manualized treatments, writing treatment plans in particular ways, um, and the, the notion of the, the accountability not in the sense that I would necessarily value it, you know, the accountability of I don't want to get sued, um, I think raises some really specific challenges for those of us that are engaged in teaching narrative ideas and practices and however we're doing it. What's alive for me is how to be bicultural almost. How do you stay connected to your um, own preferred beliefs and values and practices in sit settings where you're asked to be accountable along lines that are not the lines that you value diagnosis, a certain way of writing about, um, writing up your treatment plans, treatment notes, um, certain ways of talking that are, go completely against the grain, uh, using certain kinds of instruments that you know are oppressive. How do you do that? Because you've got to work and at the same time 
work to be be really present for what your clients need mm -hmm. and not collude you know that's a very very hard thing to do um, and for our students who we know are you know they're getting their, they're getting their, they're going to get their MFTs they're in they're in the lowest they're, they're at the bottom of the ladder we know that they're going to be going into practicum and they're not going to have very much sense for the most part of having a voice in those systems and I think we're just at the point in our program of wanting to address that. Mm. How do we help our students think about themselves as the future leaders and prepare underground? Like, you know, how to seed that idea. Really, uh, we, we do that now from the minute they get into our program. We're like, you're going to be the future leaders. They're like, hmm? But if we don't, when do we start? Mm. When do we start doing that? You know, if we don't start right away, when will the, when will the day be? because they are the next generation in this field and um, we want that to be on their radar right from the get-go. There are other narrative therapists. I mentioned Pamela Dunn doing work with drama therapy and also David Denborough's mm -hmm. and work with the Tree of Life, which you use. Will you, you say a little bit about how you use the Tree of Life? Yeah. And actually that's another reason why I felt like I could come back because by the time I was ready to re, um, rejoin narrative therapy, the narrative world a little bit more, which is when I took over running the, pro the expressive arts therapy program, because there, there were students that were interested in it. It just was like a gap that they wanted addressed. So it ha happened to coincide with the time when David was beginning to develop the collective practices work, which was like, oh, this is so great. Um, this is the right moment because he's bringing, you know, songwriting and art, the arts in, arts-based activities in to the work. Um, so I was very interested in the Tree of Life work. I actually got introduced to the Tree of Life work when I went to through drama therapy, through going to a drama therapy conference where Pamela Dunn was doing a Tree of Life workshop. <laughs> so, you know, it was on a plate for me. Um, but we started to use it as a, a sort of mainstreamed it into our expressive arts therapy program. And we now, as, during our orientation, we have a two-day orientation at the beginning of the school year, we use the um, Tree of Life as an activity that um, every student participates in as a way to get to know each other and use that as kind of a touchstone as a way to begin the process of honoring and valuing our dimensions of similarity and difference, as well as to ask about the potential storms that we're going to go through together and predict them a little bit. Mm -hmm 
and think about how we might deal with them, what resources we have to deal with them as they come up. So that's how we start getting into it. And that lays a foundation of understanding of that approach. Then in their first semester in their therapeutic communication class, um, this is part of preparing them to be bilingual in systems as well. We, when we do assessment, uh, when they have to do an assessment of a client, we have, we have them do a very conventional assessment, asking all the questions you have to ask, you know, etiology of the problem, blah, 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 um, diagnosis, etc. We have them do that, and we have them do a tree of life for their client. You know, mm -hmm. we create a fictitious client, and they have to do it in both, sort of, both modalities. Um, and then f get to understand how does it feel different if you do an assessment using the tree of life versus a more predictive, you know, of closed-ended questionnaire, basically, that is about what I want to know from you rather than what's important to you in a more holistic way. So it's been a, it's been a great tool for us. Um, and we actually began using it, first of all, uh, when we started to... We have a partnership with the Family Youth and Child Care Centre at Glide. And that was the first time we used it. We used it for the Glide community with the... Um, uh, folks there for the whole staff how did they uh receive it how did it go very well it was uh really valuable for them um individually and in giving folks who really for the most part are not exposed to these kinds of ways of working you know they're like rarefied ways of working people that were not have often been overlooked you know didn't haven't been taken seriously themselves um, gave them a chance to get to know themselves, to share their own story with themselves, as well as to share across the organization as a whole. And it's such a diverse group. It was such an immensely diverse group. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we partnered them with folks they don't normally work with. So they really got to hear stories of, about each other mm -hmm. in a new way. Um, and it set the tone for the work that we've been doing with the staff over the last four or five years. Mm -hmm with some new collective practices that we've done with them as well. And I also heard you mentioned you and Danielle developed something called the Laundry of Life. Yeah. Will you say something about yeah. that? Yeah, we actually developed that for our work with Glide. We were anticipating doing a whole staff retreat again for uh, the workers at Glide, Families and Child Care Centre. And we were sitting down and we were thinking, you know, what's a metaphor for the beginning of the school year? It was going to be the beginning of the school year. They work with after-school kids. And we were like crisp and clean and ready to go. It's like getting prepared, sharpening your pencils, you know, stuff like that. And you have your new clothes and they're all washed. And, you know, there's something about that. Then Danielle remembered this poem um, that she had heard from an elder in the slam poetry community, which was... Uh, I, we call it All My Clothes Have Been to Jail, and I can't remember what it's actually called, but it's this amazing poem by this guy who, had, who, who talks about his clothes and what his clothes had seen, all the jails that his clothes had seen. And then at some point he, he got into poetry when he was in jail, and then the poem goes starts an entirely alternate story where he's talking about the fact that all of his clothes have been in poetry slams and on stages mm. and we thought that is such a powerful metaphor so we used we took that metaphor and we created what we uh, have now evolved into this whole process of identifying the stains of life mm. um, 
the first washing cycle, which is like airing them out a little bit, <laughs> putting them at, putting them out a little bit, um, talking about the the ways that we wash them, how we might wash them with the wisdom of our ancestors. What are some things that we've learned about how to wash these clothes? Get you know, bring these take, get these stains out of our lives. What we lean into, and then uh, we have these we have we have these very it's a very contained uh, little project where we have these little templates of items of clothing shirts and pants and we've expanded now we to we give the paper out to folks because culturally speaking people have a lot of different things they want to put into you know their clothes mm -hmm. uh different kinds of items of clothing but anyway they have these very small items of clothing and uh participants will decorate them uh, with object, with uh, portrayals of objects or feathers that represent this wisdom that they've been handed down. Or it mm. might be people put very specific things on there, like a brooch that they got from a, from a grandparent or a hat that their mother wore. They'll create these. And on the other side, we have them write a six words of wisdom, Jen, like the distillation of wisdom. Mm. Um, and then we do we create a washing line. We hang a washing line in the space with little pegs and then one, but we create a spectrogram which is used in drama therapy to line up in a particular way. If it's in an organizational context like we did in Glide, the person who'd, who'd worked there the longest was on one end and the person who was the most recent to the organization was on the other end. Have them line up to honor the fact that everyone has wisdom and a unique perspective on the organization as a whole. Mm -hmm. That if you're the last person in, you're gonna have a very fresh eye on what's going on and if you're the person who's been there the longest you're going to be steeped in a certain kind of seasoned knowledge but everyone has to learn from everyone else and this is a beautiful way of doing that then one by one each person comes up they speak their knowledge their wisdom they show their item of clothing and they hang it on the line um, it's very powerful and we've been using it in lots of different contexts now we used it last year uh, <laughs> to uh, access intergenerational queer wisdom. Mm. That was amazing. <laughs> um, can you say like which organization you worked with? with, that? with that, that? We did that at, we did that at the um, Expanding the, the Circle Conference, which was at CIS. Mm. So it was folks who were in student services and students and educators from all over the country mm -hmm. um, and actually internationally. Yeah. Yeah, it was really beautiful. And we like we lined up according to when we were born, you know, our, our ages. And we talked about the different eras of the LGBT movement and what it was like to be part of that mm -hmm. era. You know, and start just a lot of sh 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 uh, sharing our stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And by the way, the clothes that people produce were the best I've ever seen. <laughs> that sounds so that sounds so fun and, and playful and Very powerful, fun. too. Um, I did it also I, uh, with a group of uh, therapists and social workers in London last year. Um, and all of, these, all of the folks in that training had all been trained in Tree of Life. So they had a point of comparison. And... Uh, that was very interesting. One of the women there created a very big heavy boot that she put on. And she talked about resilience. Mm. Um, through this heavy book but she said you know this this activity feels even more powerful than the tree of life because it's about what lives close to your skin mm. i thought oh that's mm. so beautiful you know so every time we do it we're learning something new yeah. from the participants yeah.
I came across this quote by Vincent van Gogh when I was at the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and from a letter to his brother, Theo, and he said, uh, it seems to me that it was around the invention of photography, so he was looking at these photographs that just came out, and he said, it seems to me that painting comes from deep in the soul and where the machine can't go. Mm. And I love that, especially the second part, and where the machine can't go, and you know, the machine can be a metaphor for lots of things. Mm. Um, but I know from my life, you know, music and art can go places that uh, you know, the spoken word can't. Yeah. And it's exciting to hear about her work with the Laundry of Life and David's work with songwriting and the Tree of Life. The, the other shift that I think that's happened in the time that I've been involved in narrative is the neuroscience revolution. And uh, what we know now, I mean, not to just make that everything, because I think that's become like a new god, but I don't mean it in that way, but it's certainly given us information about the, why the arts are so powerful, why nonverbal is so powerful. You know, that the mind is not located in the brain. It's not about cognition. It's about our, we are a field of knowing. Our whole body is, you know, every cell has information as responding. So when we're doing the arts, we are, we are um, changing our cellular chemistry as we are engaged in the art. You know, something's happening on a much deeper and different level mm -hmm. through bringing in the arts mm -hmm. and, you know, by, by paying attention to the sensory realm. But I'm remembering when you said that about the, you know, that quote and uh, Vincent van Gogh and the visual arts. Um, the first time I taught uh, narrative expressive arts therapy um, at CIS, we had some really strong, particularly strong visual artists, and one had created um, a diorama. So it's like a 3D, it was like a 3D object which allowed us to see a story from multiple perspectives simultaneously. Mm. You know, that you, the fact that you don't have to, it, it, it collapsed. It's so, art is so non-linear, you know, or it can be so non-linear that you can tell a multi-storied, have a multi-storied phenomenon right in front of you. Mm -hmm. So if you looked at this particular object from different angles, you'll see the same thing in a different way. And another one, woman had created um, multiple stories by using transparencies laid on top of each other. Mm. So the bottom was this beautiful open space with clouds. And then she had like these different levels of problems, stories laid on top, but you could see the, you know, the kind of unique outcomes mm. underneath all the time. Mm -hmm. But if you focused only on the problems, you could you know choose not to see it depends where you focused on but you didn't have to say anything about that mm -hmm. you just looked at it and like had a visceral response to it yeah. and it seems to me you know if i was looking at that you know the it wouldn't be necessarily even about getting rid of the problem as much as you know staying open to the the clouds or the other fields while the problem is still there it's not always about you know conquering or battling or destroying or outwitting the problem but yeah. it, it might allow for new relationships exactly. um, for that. The other, yes, and the other, the other stream of work that's been really influential in how we, are, how we hold our approach to narrative at, um, in the Expressive Arts Therapy Program is, is um, he's a Native American psychologist who talks about the healing the soul wound. You probably know him. Is it Eduardo Duran? Yeah, Eduardo Duran. But he's something of a Jungian and a, he like brings together Jungian and uh, narrative ideas. Um, and he talks, 
he talks about like the Colombo method of therapy. Do you remember, do you know him? I don't know that, but I've I've heard something like yeah. that. Like really, as a position of taking a position of not knowing, and I get maybe it's related to the kind of the somewhat you know indigenous roots that have have been in the narrative have been in narrative because of its you know coming from folkloric traditions and Australia and New Zealand. So he talks about the you know Native American idea that of honoring all your relations, and that's something that we have really see a very strong connection between that and the idea of how do you live with things that are challenges in your life. You know, like he says, you, you have relatives that you can't stand, but you don't kill them off. Mm-hmm. You know, you learn to live with them. You, you work with that. You know, I thought that's such a wonderful, it's a you know, wonderful way of expressing it. It's like, it's, it's, how do you work with it? How do you relate? How are you going to relate to this, this fact of your life mm-hmm. differently? You know, it's not going to go, it's not necessarily going to go away. Yeah. I've heard that Peggy Sachs has this you know, week-long workshop called Refreshing the Spirit of the Work, or maybe that's a subtitle, but um, are there any kind of practices that you do or that you've heard from your students that they do that kind of refresh the spirit of the work? Well, I think the collective practices really do that, mm. you know, in and of themselves. They really do. I, th- I think it's partly why we do it, you know. Um, I'm about to, we're about to have a workshop, uh, a all day class on Friday for this class, and they they take this class in their second year right before they go into practicum, which I'm sure you <laughs> remember how stressful that is, and that's usually when we do the laundry of life. Actually, we're doing a new activity this time. We're piloting this new activity that is provisionally called um, uh, the spirit is the spirits in the small things. And this um, activity is about finding very small objects that you normally overlook in your life, like it might be a, pen, a button that fell off a shirt, or noticing those things that live around us that we don't look at or we marginalize, and they gather them. We're asking them to bring them in um, and share them and pick different objects, small objects that represent some of the overlooked gifts that they have in their lives and then they're going to create we're going to just we're not going to give it all away because this is brand new but we're working with small boxes Mm. creating boxes of uh just sort of almost like self-care boxes Mm -hmm. that are about you know who what do i want to keep preserve inside of of me right now and how open do i want to be and you know just starting to ask some of those questions Mm -hmm. about having about integrity maybe is the word Mm. but you know one's own integrity in relation to uh, interacting with others and how much one wants to share and when and how and yeah very important questions for therapists mm-hmm. you know how permeable do I want to be are there particular poems or movies or literature that kind of um, has been guiding lights for you and your work um, I think poetry is the thing that most guides me um, I'm probably like I'm very drawn to Zimborska. I don't even know if I ever pronounce her name correctly, but um, she's a Polish poet, post-war poet, and her very much her. I find her um, writing just renewing, mm. and she sees things from such a improvisational, random kind of perspective that it's always. I read it. I t- I go to back to it over and over again. 
to remind me of the kind of um, random nature on in some ways of where the chips fall in one's life and to be grateful you know for what we have mm. like she's got a poem called nothing twice you know you got to get it right you, you, it's never going to happen this moment's never going to happen again so you know enjoy it mm-hmm. deal with it <laughs> <laughs> with this radio show is I'll interview lots of people involved in narrative therapy and um, do you have any questions that you'd like uh, me to ask others involved in, in narrative work? Hmm. I, yeah, what, keep, what's, keep, what keeps you connected to, to some source of inspiration? You know, what inspires you? Yeah. What keeps you fresh? I'll answer that. You know, I think music has been a real powerful force in my life. And I was a, a radio DJ in college, and I just got a turntable this weekend listening to old records that I've collected from friends of friends and stuff. It always seems to go where the machine can't go and um, get at those hard-to-reach places. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love finding it. You know, I, I'm I'm pretty broad, so um, there's this record that um, my partner was taking care of someone who passed away, and that person's brother gave her a collection of records. He was a musician, and he had some flute music from the Andes, like traditional flute music, and this is really beautiful, really beautiful sounds, and just fills the space of my home with a, a different kind of... Um, energy that I really like and that always kind of zests me up you know mm. you mentioned the post-war port is there any anything else that you would add to what ins- what keeps you inspired music as well mm-hmm. yeah music finding the and I think music can be so powerful in, in using in in relation to narrative work as well mm. you know David's work in songwriting for sure you know right rewriting stories I have a very, very proud of one of my doctoral students um, who is about to f- finish his work. He was like one of the founders of like the um, break, break dancing and DJ movements in LA in the 80s. And um, he has developed an approach called, he's called narrative remix therapy. Wow. So he's mash, doing mashing up songs, but he's also animation, using free apps, working with kids. Um, and using free apps to uh, create new stories of their lives, but using kids' own propens- you know, ways of doing things now. Kids do mash up their stories, mm-hmm. but using them to empower them. And uh, he's about to do his defense for his dissertation. What's his name? Jeffrey Jamison. He actually teaches a class in expressive remix mm-hmm. therapy for us. Worth attending.
Is there anything else that you'd like to uh, discuss that we didn't cover? Thanks to Shoshana Simons for coming in and sharing her stories and her perspective on narrative therapy. If you'd like to contact her, she can be reached at ssimons at ciis.edu. The music for this podcast was generously shared online through the Creative Commons license. We had DJ Lang 59 with Garden of the Forking, then EIGID with E minor 124, The Lights Galaxia with While She Sleeps, Nick Bamarito with Folk Psychology, PITX with, with Calperina, and what you're hearing right now is again DJ Lang 59 with Drops of H2O. Thanks for listening. <laughs>